Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to the first two episodes, the prologue episode, and then episode one, the 1960 election. In our last episode, I told you this was going to be a bit of a wander. Well, we're two episodes in, and we haven't really provided any narrative yet on the assassination events themselves. So I started thinking, what might be the best way to accomplish that and do it early in the podcast series? Some readers have never heard the story, others just parts of the story, and still others, well, for lots of reasons, they simply don't remember much of the details. At the same time, in the prologue episode, we talked about the shortcomings of the Warren Commission report, and yet it's still the most comprehensive and authoritative document on the topic. And remember, I said that uh, while we are critics of the conclusions that the Warren Commission report came to about a conspiracy, there are thousands of facts contained in the Warren Commission report that are true. And remember the other thing about the Warren Commission report is that there are many errors of omission and some conclusions that simply are not true. So here's what we've decided to do over the next couple of episodes. We're going to bring you verbatim some of the narrative in the Warren Commission report. Don't worry, it won't be that boring. It's actually a pretty good story to listen to. They wrote it for the American public to read. After all, you can't be a critic of the Warren Commission report if you haven't actually read it. So let's read some of the critical parts of it together. A couple of pointers before we get started. First, pay particular attention to phrases like, we found no credible evidence to support blah, blah, blah. That's a common theme in what you will hear. We're going to unpack the problems with the narrative, but first we're going to give it to you the way the government did back in 1964. So here we go. At 11.40 a.m. Central Standard Time on Friday, November 22, 1963, President John F. Kennedy, Mrs. Kennedy, and their party arrived at Love Field, Dallas, Texas. Behind them was the first day of a Texas trip planned five months before by the President, Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson, and John B. Conley, Jr., Governor of Texas. After leaving the White House on Thursday morning, the president had flown initially to San Antonio, where Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson joined the party, and the president dedicated new research facilities at the U.S. Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine. Following a testimonial dinner in Houston for U.S. Representative Albert Thomas, the president flew to Fort Worth, where he spent the night and spoke at a large breakfast gathering on Friday. Planned for later that day were a motorcade through downtown Dallas, a luncheon speech at the Trademark, and a flight to Austin, where the president would attend a reception and speak at a Democratic fundraising dinner. From Austin, he would proceed to the Texas ranch of the vice president. 
Evident on this trip were the very roles which an American president performs. Head of state, chief executive, party leader, and, in this instance, prospective candidate for re-election. The Dallas motorcade, it was hoped, would evoke a demonstration of the president's personal popularity in a city which he had lost in the 1960 election. Once it had been decided that the trip to Texas would span two days, those responsible for planning, primarily Governor Conley and Kenneth O'Donnell, a special assistant to the president, agreed that a motorcade through Dallas would be desirable. The Secret Service was told on November 8th that 45 minutes had been allotted to a motorcade procession from Love Field to the site of a luncheon planned by Dallas business and civic leaders in honor of the president. After considering the facilities and security problems of several buildings, the trademark was chosen as the luncheon site. Given the selection, and in accordance with the customary practice of affording the greatest number of people an opportunity to see the president, the motorcade route selected was a natural one. The route was approved by the local host committee and White House representatives on November 18th and publicized in the local paper starting on November 19th. This advanced publicity made it clear that the motorcade would leave Main Street and pass the intersection of Elm and Houston Streets as it proceeded to the trademark by way of the Stemmons Freeway. By mid-morning of November 22nd, clearing skies in Dallas dispelled the threat of rain and the president greeted the crowds from his open limousine without the bubble top, which was at the time a plastic shield furnishing protection only against inclement weather. To the left of the president, in the rear, was Mrs. Kennedy. In the jump seats were Governor Conley, who was in front of the president, and Mrs. Conley at the governor's left. Agent William R. Greer of the Secret Service was driving, and Agent Roy H. Kellerman was sitting to his right. Directly behind the presidential limousine was an open follow-up car with eight Secret Service agents, two in the front seat, two in the rear, and two on each running board. These agents, in accordance with normal Secret Service procedures, were instructed to scan the crowds, the roofs, and the windows of buildings, overpasses, and crossings for signs of trouble. Behind the follow-up car was the vice presidential car carrying the vice president and Mrs. Johnson and Senator Ralph W. Yarborough. Next were a vice presidential follow-up car, and several cars and buses for additional dignitaries, press representatives, and others. The motorcade left Love Field shortly after 11.50 a.m. and proceeded through residential neighborhoods, stopping twice at the president's request to greet well-wishers among the friendly crowds. Each time the president's car halted, Secret Service agents from the follow-up car moved forward to assume a protective stance near the President and Mrs. Kennedy. As the motorcade reached Main Street, a principal east-west artery in downtown Dallas, the welcome became tumultuous. At the extreme west end of Main Street, the motorcade turned right on Houston Street and proceeded north for one block in order to make a left turn on Elm Street, the most direct and convenient approach to the Stemmons Freeway and the trademark. 
As the president's car approached the intersection of Houston and Elm Streets, there loomed directly ahead on the intersection's northwest corner a seven-story orange brick warehouse and office building, the Texas School Book Depository. Riding in the vice president's car, Agent Rufus W. Youngblood of the Secret Service noticed that the clock atop the building indicated 12.30 p.m., the scheduled arrival time at the trademark. The president's car, which had been going north, made a sharp turn toward the southwest onto Elm Street. At a speed of about 11 miles per hour, it started down the gradual descent toward a railroad overpass under which the motorcade would proceed before reaching the Stemmons Freeway. The front of the Texas School Book Depository was now on the president's right, and he waved to the crowd assembled there as he passed the building. Dealey Plaza, an open landscaped area marking the western end of downtown Dallas, stretched out to the president's left. A Secret Service agent riding in the motorcade radioed the trademark that the president would arrive in five minutes. Seconds later, shots resounded in rapid succession. The president's hands moved to his neck. He appeared to stiffen momentarily and lurch slightly forward in his seat. A bullet had entered the base of the back of his neck, slightly to the right of the spine. It traveled downward and exited from the front of the neck, causing a nick in the left lower portion of the knot in the president's necktie. Before the shooting started, Governor Conley had been facing toward the crowd on the right. He started to turn toward the left and suddenly felt a blow on his back. The governor had been hit by a bullet which entered at the extreme right side of his back at a point below his right armpit. The bullet traveled through his chest in a downward and forward direction, exited below his right nipple, passed through his right wrist, which had been in his lap, and then caused a wound to his left thigh. The force of the bullet's impact appeared to spin the governor to his right, and Mrs. Conley pulled him down into her lap. Another bullet then struck President Kennedy in the rear portion of his head, causing a massive and fatal wound the president fell to the left into Mrs. Kennedy's lap. Secret Service agent Clinton J. Hill, riding on the left running board of the follow-up car, heard a noise which sounded like a firecracker and saw the president suddenly lean forward and to the left. Hill jumped off the car and raced toward the president's limousine. In the front seat of the vice presidential car, Agent Youngblood, heard an explosion and noticed unusual movements in the crowd. He vaulted into the rear seat and sat on the vice president in order to protect him. At the same time, Agent Kellerman in the front seat of the presidential limousine turned to observe the president. Seeing that the president was struck, Kellerman instructed the driver, let's get out of here, we are hit. He radioed ahead to the lead car get us to the hospital immediately. Agent Greer immediately accelerated the presidential car. As it gained speed, Agent Hill managed to pull himself onto the back of the car where Mrs. Kennedy had climbed. Hill pushed her back into the rear seat and shielded the stricken president and Mrs. Kennedy as the president's car proceeded at high speed to Parkland Memorial Hospital, four miles away.
At Parkland, the president was immediately treated by a team of physicians who had been alerted for the president's arrival by the Dallas Police Department as the result of a radio message from the motorcade after the shooting. The doctors noted irregular breathing movements and a possible heartbeat, although they could not detect a pulse beat. They observed the extensive wound in the president's head and a small wound approximately one-fourth inch in diameter in the lower third of his neck. In an effort to facilitate breathing, the physicians performed a tracheotomy by enlarging the throat wound and inserting a tube. Totally absorbed in the immediate task of trying to preserve the president's life, the attending doctors never turned the president over for an examination of his back. At 1 p.m., after all heart activity ceased and the last rites were administered by a priest, President Kennedy was pronounced dead. Governor Conley underwent surgery and ultimately recovered from his serious wounds. Upon learning of the president's death, Vice President Johnson left Parkland Hospital under close guard and proceeded to the presidential plane at Love Field. Mrs. Kennedy, accompanying her husband's body, boarded the plane shortly thereafter. At 2.38 p.m. in the central compartment of the plane, Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn in as the 36th President of the United States by Federal District Court Judge Sarah T. Hughes. The plane left immediately for Washington, D.C., arriving at Andrews Air Force Base, Maryland, at 5.58 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The president's body was taken to the National Naval Medical Center, Bethesda, Maryland, where it was given a complete pathological examination. The autopsy disclosed the large head wound observed at Parkland and the wound in the front of the neck which had been enlarged by the Parkland doctors when they performed the tracheotomy. Both of these wounds were described in the autopsy report as being presumably of exit. In addition, the autopsy revealed a small wound of entry in the rear of the president's skull and another wound of entry near the base of the back of the neck. The autopsy report stated the cause of death as gunshot wound head, and the bullets which struck the president were described as having been fired from a point behind and somewhat above the level of the deceased. At the scene of the shooting, there was evident confusion at the outset concerning the point of origin of the shots. Witnesses differed in their accounts of the direction from which the sound of the shots emanated. Within a few minutes, however, attention centered on the Texas School Book Depository building as the source of the shots. The building was occupied by a private corporation, the Texas School Book Depository Company, which distributed school textbooks of several publishers and leased space to representatives of those publishers. Most of the employees in the building worked for these publishers. The balance, including a 15-man warehousing crew, were employees of the Texas School Book Depository Company itself. Several eyewitnesses in front of the building reported that they saw a rifle being fired from the southeast corner window on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. One eyewitness, Howard L. Brennan, 
had been watching the parade from a point on Elm Street directly opposite and facing the building. He promptly told the policeman that he had seen a slender man, about 5 feet 10 inches, in his early 30s, take a deliberate aim from the 6th floor corner window and fire a rifle in the direction of the president's car. Brennan thought he might be able to identify the man since he had noticed him in the window a few minutes before the motorcade made the turn onto Elm Street. At 12.34 p.m., the Dallas police radio mentioned the depository building as a possible source of the shots. And at 12.45 p.m., the police radio broadcast a description of the suspected assassin based primarily on Brennan's observations. When the shots were fired, a Dallas motorcycle patrolman, Marion L. Baker, was riding in the motorcade at a point several cars behind the president. He had turned right from Main Street onto Houston Street and was about 200 feet south of Elm Street when he heard a shot. Baker, having recently returned from a week of deer hunting, was certain the shot came from a high-powered rifle. He looked up and saw pigeons scattering in the air from their perches on the Texas School Book Depository building. He raced his motorcycle to the building, dismounted, scanned the area to the west, and pushed his way through the spectators toward the entrance. There he encountered Roy Truly, the building superintendent, who offered Baker his help. They entered the building and ran toward the two elevators in the rear. Finding that both elevators were on an upper floor, they dashed up the stairs. Not more than two minutes had elapsed since the shooting. When they reached the second floor landing on their way up to the top of the building, Patrolman Baker thought he caught a glimpse of someone through the small glass window in the door separating the hall area near the stairs from the small vestibule leading into the lunchroom. Gun in hand, he rushed to the door and saw a man about 20 feet away walking toward the other end of the lunchroom. The man was empty-handed. At Baker's command, the man turned and approached him. Truly, who had started up the stairs to the third floor ahead of Baker, returned to see what had delayed the patrolman. Baker asked Truly whether he knew the man in the lunchroom. Truly replied that the man worked in the building, whereupon Baker turned from the man and proceeded with Truly up the stairs. The man they encountered had started working in the Texas School Book Depository building on October 16, 1963. His fellow workers described him as very quiet, a loner. His name was Lee Harvey Oswald. Within about one minute after his encounter with Baker and Truly, Oswald was seen passing through the second floor offices. In his hand was a full Coke bottle, which he had purchased from a vending machine in the lunchroom. He was walking toward the front of the building, where a passenger elevator and a short flight of stairs provided access to the main entrance of the building on the first floor. Approximately seven minutes later, at about 12.40 p.m., Oswald boarded a bus at a point on Elm Street, seven short blocks east of the depository building. The bus was traveling west toward the very building from which Oswald had come. Its route lay through the Oak Cliff section in southwest Dallas, 
where it would pass seven blocks east of the rooming house in which Oswald was living at 1026 North Beckley Avenue. On the bus was Mrs. Mary Bledsoe, one of Oswald's former landladies who immediately recognized him. Oswald stayed on the bus approximately three or four minutes, during which time it proceeded only two blocks because of the traffic jam created by the motorcade and the assassination. Oswald then left the bus. A few minutes later, he encountered a vacant taxi four blocks away and asked the driver to take him to a point on North Beckley Avenue, several blocks beyond his rooming house. The trip required five or six minutes. At about 1 p.m., Oswald arrived at the rooming house. The housekeeper, Mrs. Erlene Roberts, was surprised to see Oswald at midday and remarked to him that he seemed to be in quite a hurry. He made no reply. A few minutes later, Oswald emerged from his room, zipping up his jacket, and rushed out of the house. Approximately 14 minutes later, and just 45 minutes after the assassination, another violent shooting occurred in Dallas. The victim was Patrolman J.D. Tippett of the Dallas Police, an officer with a good record during his more than 11 years with the police force. He was shot near the intersection of 10th Street and Patton Avenue, about nine-tenths of a mile from Oswald's rooming house. At the time of the assassination, Tippett was alone in his patrol car, the routine practice for most police cars at this time of day. He had been ordered by radio at 12.45 p.m. to proceed to the central Oak Cliff area as part of a concentration of patrol car activity around the center of the city following the assassination. At 12.54, Tippett radioed that he had moved as directed and would be available for any emergency. By this time, the police radio had broadcast several messages alerting the police to the suspect described by Brennan at the scene of the assassination, a slender white male, about 30 years old, 5 feet 10 inches, and weighing about 165 pounds. At approximately 1.15 p.m., Tippett was driving slowly in an easterly direction on East 10th Street in Oak Cliff. About 100 feet past the intersection of 10th Street and Patton Avenue, Tippett pulled up alongside a man walking in the same direction. The man met the general description of the suspect wanted in connection with the assassination. He walked over to Tippett's car, rested his arms on the door on the right-hand side of the car, and apparently exchanged words with Tippett through the window. Tippett opened the door on the left side and started to walk around the front of his car. As he reached the front wheel on the driver's side, the man on the sidewalk drew a revolver and fired several shots in rapid succession, hitting Tippett four times and killing him instantly. An automobile repairman, Domingo Benavides, heard the shots and stopped his pickup truck on the opposite side of the street, about 25 feet in front of Tippett's car. He observed the gunman starting back toward Patton Avenue, removing the empty cartridge cases from the gun as he went. Benavides rushed to Tippett's side. The patrolman, apparently dead, was lying on his revolver, which was out of its holster. 
Benavides promptly reported the shooting to police headquarters over the radio in Tippett's car. The message was received shortly after 1.16 p.m. As the gunman left the scene, he walked hurriedly back toward Patton Avenue and turned left, heading south. Standing on the northwest corner of 10th Street and Patton Avenue was Helen Markham, who had been walking south on Patton Avenue and had seen both the killer and Tippett cross the intersection in front of her as she waited on the curb for traffic to pass. She witnessed the shooting and then saw the man with a gun in his hand walk back toward the corner and cut across the lawn of the corner house as he started south on Patton Avenue. In the corner house itself, Mrs. Barbara Jeanette Davis and her sister-in-law, Mrs. Virginia Davis, heard the shots and rushed to the door in time to see the man walk rapidly across the lawn, shaking a revolver as if he were emptying it out of cartridge cases. Later that day, each woman found a cartridge case near the house. As the gunman turned the corner, he passed alongside a taxi cab, which was parked on Patton Avenue, a few feet from 10th Street. The driver, William W. Scoggins, had seen the slaying and was now crouched behind his cab on the street side. As the gunman cut through the shrubbery on the lawn, Scoggins looked up and saw the man approximately 12 feet away. In his hand was a pistol, and he muttered words which sounded to Scoggins like, poor dumb cop, or poor damn cop. After passing Scoggins, the gunman crossed to the west side of Patton Avenue and ran south toward Jefferson Boulevard, a main Oak Cliff thoroughfare. On the east side of Patton, between 10th Street and Jefferson Boulevard, Ted Calloway, a used car salesman, heard the shots and ran to the sidewalk. As the man with the gun rushed past, Calloway shouted, What's going on? The man merely shrugged, ran on to Jefferson Boulevard, and turned right. On the next corner was a gas station with a parking lot in the rear. The assailant ran into the lot, discarded his jacket, and then continued his flight west on Jefferson. In a shoe store a few blocks farther west on Jefferson, the manager, Johnny Calvin Brewer, heard the siren of a police car moments after the radio in his store announced the shooting of the police officer in Oak Cliff. Brewer saw a man step quickly into the entranceway of the store and stand there with his back toward the street. When the police car made a U-turn and headed back in the direction of the Tippett shooting, the man left and Brewer followed him. He saw the man enter the Texas Theater, a motion picture house about 60 feet away without buying a ticket. Brewer pointed this out to the cashier, Mrs. Julia Postal, who called the police. The time was shortly after 1.40 p.m. At 1.29 p.m., the police radio had noted the similarity in the descriptions of the suspects in the Tippett shooting and the assassination. At 1.45 p.m., in response to Mrs. Postal's call, the police radio sounded the alarm. Have information. A suspect just went into the Texas Theater on West Jefferson. Within minutes, the theater was surrounded. The house lights were then turned up. Patrolman M.N. McDonald and several other policemen approached the man who had been pointed out to them by Brewer. McDonald ordered the man to his feet and heard him say, Well, it's all over now. 
The man drew a gun from his waist with one hand and struck the officer with the other. McDonald struck out with his right hand and grabbed the gun with his left hand. After a brief struggle, McDonald and several other police officers disarmed and handcuffed the suspect and drove him to police headquarters, arriving at approximately 2 p.m. Following the assassination, police cars had rushed to the Texas School Book Depository in response to the many radio messages reporting that the shots had been fired from the depository building. Inspector J. Herbert Sawyer of the Dallas Police Department arrived at the scene shortly after hearing the first of these police radio messages at 12.34 p.m. Some of the officers who had been assigned to the area of Elm and Houston Streets for the motorcade were talking to witnesses and watching the building when Sawyer arrived. Sawyer entered the building and rode a passenger elevator to the fourth floor, which was the top floor for this elevator. He conducted a quick search, returned to the main floor, and between approximately 12.37 and 12.40 p.m. ordered that no one be permitted to leave the building. Shortly before 1 p.m., Captain J. Will Fritz, chief of the Homicide and Robbery Bureau of the Dallas Police Department, arrived to take charge of the investigation. Searching the sixth floor, Deputy Sheriff Luke Mooney noticed a pile of cartons in the southeast corner. He squeezed through the boxes and realized immediately that he had discovered the point from which the shots had been fired. On the floor were three empty cartridge cases. A carton had apparently been placed on the floor at the side of the window so that a person sitting on the carton could look down Elm Street toward the overpass and scarcely be noticed from the outside. Between this carton and the half-open window were three additional cartons arranged at such an angle that a rifle resting on the top carton would be aimed directly at the motorcade as it moved away from the building. The high stack of boxes, which first attracted Mooney's attention, effectively screened a person at the window from the view of anyone else on the floor. Mooney's discovery intensified the search for additional evidence on the sixth floor, and at 1.22 p.m., approximately 10 minutes after the cartridges were found, Deputy Sheriff Eugene Boone turned his flashlight in the direction of two rows of boxes in the northwest corner near the staircase. Stuffed between the two rows was a bolt-action rifle with a telescopic sight. The rifle was not touched until it could be photographed. When Lieutenant J.C. Day of the Police Identification Bureau decided that the wooden stock and the metal knob at the end of the bolt contained no prints, he held the rifle by the stock while Captain Fritz ejected a live shell by operating the bolt. Lieutenant Day promptly noted that stamped on the rifle made was a serial number C2766 as well as the markings 1940, Made Italy, and Cal 6.5. The rifle was about 40 inches long, and when disassembled, it could fit into a handmade paper sack, which, after the assassination, was found in the southeast corner of the building, within a few feet of the cartridge cases. As Fritz and Day were completing their examination of this rifle on the sixth floor, 
Roy Truly, the building superintendent, approached with information which he felt should be brought to the attention of the police. Earlier, while the police were questioning the employees, Truly had observed that Lee Harvey Oswald, one of the 15 men who had worked in the warehouse, was missing. After Truly provided Oswald's name, address, and general description, Fritz left for police headquarters. He arrived at the headquarters shortly after 2 p.m. and asked two detectives to pick up the employee who was missing from the Texas School Book Depository. Standing nearby were the police officers who had just arrived with a man arrested in the Texas theater. When Fritz mentioned the name of the missing employee, he learned that the man was already in the interrogation room. The missing school book depository employee and the suspect who had been apprehended in the Texas theater were one and the same, Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, that does it for episode two, and we'll pick it back up in episode three, where the suspect that Fritz is about to question is a man from New Orleans. This is your host, Jeff Cordell, and I hope you've enjoyed episode two of JFK, The Enduring Secret.